Welcome to the March 21st, 2023 podcast of Wisdom Today. Hello, my name is Bill Kelly and I'll be your host today. Today we'll be going over Proverb 21, but before we begin, let's open in prayer. Father God, I thank you for anyone listening to this podcast today. Lord, I pray that you would reveal how much you truly love each and every one listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is Proverb 21, beginning in verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. The way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, his work is right. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise. But when the wise is instructed... He receives knowledge. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. A gift in secret pacifies anger, and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. There is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long but the righteous gives and does not spare. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? 
A false witness shall perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. A wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Friends, I have a friend today, Rick Whitford, and he is a third-year student for Karis, so I'm going to try to pick his brain a little bit. Rick, first thing, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Bill. Uh, it's been a joy to get to know you at school, and this is, this is going to be fun. All righty, we just finished reading Proverb 21, and there's a number of good verses. Which verse speaks to you today? Well, when we're filming this, it's kind of influencing that a little bit. Um, But two verses really kind of stand out for me, and that's uh, verse 2, Every way uh, of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. And down in verse, I believe it's 31, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Those two things are really jumping off the page for me today. Wow, that's really good. Um, Rick, um, the audience may not know you. If you would, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you remember about your childhood. Oh, well, I was originally born in the Northeast in Connecticut and moved to Chicago and Baltimore. Uh, My dad was in a company that transferred him around quite a bit. Grew up a Catholic boy, uh, was an altar boy, uh, stole some sips of wine and Never the wafers, because those were holy, right? Um, but, you know, grew up with a good foundation. All the Bible stories were told were real well, but there was an emptiness. I remember panicking in church one time. I think it was a, a gymnasium where the church was being held in Old Sabre, Connecticut. And the uh, we were kneeling, and I remember panicking, thinking, what happens if I die? Am I going to go to heaven? Because... The gospel message was never, never prepared for, you know, was never talked about. This is the Northeast where being a Catholic is like being a Jew. You don't necessarily have to believe everything, but you go there. It's the social arena. It's where your, all your family goes, and it's just a part of life. And so the, the catechism of it, and I was in catechism or, or whatever we called that, um, you know, when I got into my early teens and and, um, you know, middle school years, we would go and we would learn these things, but we never learned the gospel. We learned Catholic theology. Um, but then when I, I, when I got into high school, I started partying really, really hard and doing all those things that we do when we try to party, drinking and doing drugs and chasing girls. But there was a big, huge emptiness. And I was living with my parents in Baltimore and just things were getting really, really bad. Uh, we happened to visit my relatives in uh, Thanksgiving of 1984, and had a blast. It was gorgeous. The weather was great. It was warm. Um, Atlanta was beautiful. I had all this fun. And then I get back to Baltimore, where it's that gray, gloomy sky for a long time. And the girlfriend I had, which was the only person in my life that I got any love from, just affection or kindness, and, and, but, and that was starting to get rocky. And I, I kind of panicked, and things were just going downhill. And I decided right after New Year's 
It's like, I'm going to pack up my stuff and I'm going to head south. And so I did. I, I faked being sick one morning, told my mom I was going to be staying home. My dad wasn't around. Uh, he was on a business trip or something. Packed up my car and uh, drove from Baltimore, Maryland, as a 17-year-old, all the way down to Atlanta, Georgia, even spending the night in a hotel in Charlotte you know, by myself, which was really kind of an interesting thing when I, when I look back at it. But I really felt like God, I had the winds of God behind me the whole time. I didn't know that, but I was getting more free the further south I got. And then when I got to my cousin's doorstep, my dad was on the other line. He had somehow tracked me down, or that was the last place, and it was just perfect timing. I ended up working out a deal with my relatives, uh, let me finish high school there. I wanted to go to Georgia anyhow. Um, and uh, if you would, just let me finish high school, and we'll, we'll do that. Well, turns out my cousin was a party animal. And so we just got into it. And from January of 85 to June, when I graduated, we just partied really, really hard. Um, but the good thing was I got very well close with a guy whose dad had recently been saved. And he started, um, he started witnessing to me in my heart. And I was like, man, what do you do for fun? Because I wanted to have fun. And he's like, well, we have, we have Bible studies. And it's like, what do you do in the Bible study? Well, we kind of sing and we read the Bible. It's like, but what do you do for fun? And I'm, and I'm like, do you not go down to Chattahoochee and where's the beer and where are the girls and where's the party? And I was looking for that sort of thing. Um, and then the party died. Uh, about a month after I graduated high school, my cousin committed suicide. He was a year older than me. He partied way harder than me. I stopped hanging out with him because he partied so hard and too much and just couldn't stop. And when he committed suicide, that's when I realized, all right, I've got a choice to make. Do I keep doing what I'm doing and ignore what I see right in front of me? Or do I listen to my buddy's dad who's starting to witness to me and, and drop these seeds into my heart? And so um, uh, it turns out right after Matt's um, funeral, I drove down to Siesta Key with my, the family that I was now staying with, my best friend and its dad. They invited me to come along with them on their summer trip. And before we got there, McDill Air Force Base, Bayside Baptist Church, July 12, 1985, I gave my heart to the Lord in a little Air Force Baptist Church. Before I got to the beach, the babes and the beer, um, I was giving my heart to Jesus and didn't have a single beer on that, uh, on that little island, had a great, great time. And from that point on, I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night. Um, and was really seeking after God, and it was just a it was a great year uh, for me, just because I was ex I was getting exposed to someone I was seeking most of my life, but I was seeking the Word and not religion. So it was it was really 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 cool. Wow, Rick, that is that is such a good testimony. You know, it says um, I'm just going to go over this that we are a spirit. We have a soul, and we live in a body. Mm -hmm. And so it's very evident that you understood the spirit part of that. You've just kind of explained that very well for us. But what happened in your soulish realm? How did you feel the transition once you actually gave your heart to Jesus? How did that change for you? <clears throat> well, uh, I've talked about this several times with my wife, and one of the benefits of growing up, Catholic, and then becoming a Christian, at least for me, is I realized I could just scrap everything that I ever learned. It was very easy 
to, as opposed to growing up Episcopalian or Lutheran or Methodist or any other type of mainline denomination that's considered Protestant, uh, and my wife struggled with this because she grew up kind of Mennonite, you know, and, and that's more like a conservative, you know, Lutheran or something. But, you know, she had been in a Protestant church, but I was in a Catholic church. And so I just got rid of everything, didn't retain other than the Bible stories and started learning everything <clears throat> fresh and new. But I knew as a good Catholic, I had a new rule book instead of the Catholic book, I had the Bible. So now what are the things I need to get rid of? And so I immediately stopped drinking uh, and didn't have a sip for at least two years, um, never did drugs again, um, really stopped dating, was interested in dating, but really didn't want to, you know, I just had a, a two-year time where I was kind of in my desert season. I was getting my mind and body. I was doing the Romans 12, 1 and 2. I remember Rich, Robert Tilton was one of the guys I heard, and he he, re, he referred back to Joshua 1, 8, and 9, you know, about meditate therein day and night. And I and that just stuck with me for the longest time. Of course, he was focusing on the good success part, but I was talking, uh, he, I was really impacted by the meditate day and night therein. So I was reading through my Bible. I was going to Monday, at Sunday morning, Sunday night church at Mount Perrin Church of God in Atlanta, and then Mile and Lefevre and Broken Heart were based out of that church in Atlanta, so they had concerts every Monday night, or another Christian band. So I was going to Monday night concerts with Christians. Tuesday night there was a Metro Bible study that had five to seven hundred, you know, other Christians from the Atlanta area doing this Bible study at Mount Perrin. Uh, Thursday night was a Thursday night group um, that I went to college and career. So I was immersed in new word, new people, new friends and relationships. And what was so beautiful about it is I, I had real relationships. Mount Perrin at the time was such a great church, at least for me, because it wasn't the, hi, how are you? Great. Hi, how are you? Great. How are you? Great. It wasn't one of those things. If we, in Sunday school class, if you had a bad week, you said you had a bad week, you know? And so we were all, and there were some guys there that smoked. You know, here you are in the South where you were in suits to church, not shorts and T-shirts, but suits. And people, you know, had, there was a certain formalness, you know, to it. Um, but there was also this realness. And I remember one guy uh, was a painter and, and he always smelled like cigarettes. And he knew he needed to quit cigarettes, but he had the sweetest heart, loved the Lord, and nobody looked down on him because he was smoking cigarettes. There was another guy who um, was going through some court battles for some stuff he did before he got saved, you know, and, and he had, uh, you know, we had prayed together many, many times, man, having a bad week, you know, I'm really struggling with this and anger or whatever it was. And so I, I had this wonderful first start of an experience where I saw real Christians, real people walking out their faith with fear and trembling. But as I kept going through Mount Perrin on Sunday mornings, occasionally we would have these groups come in and these choirs came in with all students my age, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22. And I'm like, what is this? And this is, oh, the Lee College Campus Choir. I was like, what is that? And it's like, it's a college that's part of the Church of God. That That's like, wait, there's a utopia where all the people like me go to chase after the Lord? <laughs> Little did he know. And so after a year of doing my Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, um, I enrolled at Lee and, and started going to a 
really good Christian school up in Cleveland, Tennessee, that, you know, I started learning a lot more about church and a lot more about theology and, and some other things. And, and so it was a really unique experience because now I started to see different types of Christians. Uh, there were some of the Christians there that were sentenced to go there by their parents. You know, it's like, hey, you guys fix them. We can't. So you take this one. They were really, really rebellious. We had the other churchy guys that, you know, didn't fit anywhere else except in the church, whether they were preacher types that had the helmet hair, you know, and wore their, their pants up by their belly buttons, you know, really great people, sweet guys. But, you know, we'd have picked on them in high school a little bit. And then they had the jocks and all these different people. And I, I was kind of in this area where I was a jock and a frat boy. We didn't have fraternities there. But I was chasing after God, so I was a very unique species where I didn't really fit because the God chasers wore their pants at their belly buttons and, and had Aquanet smell on them all the time. Um, and then, you know, but they didn't have any pretty girls around. And then the fraternity guys were more about working out, wearing tank tops, showing off their muscles to impress the girls. And so it was an interesting time for me, for sure. I didn't like it, only stayed there two years. And then when I got to Georgia, uh, which was my childhood dream, ever since I saw Herschel Walker, uh, senator from the great state of Georgia, uh, let's hope, um, run over Bill Bates in the Georgia-Tennessee game in 1980 or 81. I'm like, where is Georgia? I have to go there. Ended up going to Georgia, and that was the perfect environment for me. I was in the middle of the fire. Uh, but there were five or six different Christian groups, Baptist Student Union, Campus Crusade, Worldwide Discipleship. I got involved in something called Baptist uh, or uh, uh, Bulldog Christian Fellowship, which recruited really athletes, fraternity, and sorority people, kind of the what Lance Wall now would call the gatekeepers of all the different gates, the influencers. And we were going after influencers, and we had a lot of those, but it was a spirit-filled fellowship, and we just love God and love people. And it was really a lot of fun, but I could go see REM play under a different pseudonym and or have them walking on campus or B-52s or driving and crying. All these different secular things were at my disposal, but every day I got to choose between do I go, you know, get drunk and go watch, you know, REM or, you know, play at the 40-watt club, or do I go to or Bulldog Christian Fellowship praise God and, and witness to people. So it was great for me because I love being in the fire. Uh, and that, that really, really helped me um, because sometimes I didn't choose the BCF. And when I was in that environment, I remember hating it when I was there. It's like, I don't belong here. I don't need to be here. I wish I could have fun, but I only had fun over here doing the things that I thought were ridiculous just a couple years earlier, reading the Bible, having fellowship with other Christians. That was fun to me now, not going down the Chattahoochee. So going there, and then as a result of being at uh, Georgia, I got an internship with IBM, and that was in Atlanta. During my internship in Atlanta, one of my friends offered to pay my way down to Honduras to escort a youth group down there for a missions trip. And while I was down there, met my wife, her family was a mission team down there, met my wife on Roatan Island um, in the middle of the Caribbean, couldn't have been a more gorgeous location. And, uh, and so there were, I ended up finding my wife, the woman I've been married to for 30 years now, on a little tiny remote island in the middle of nowhere, you'd never find it if you weren't a diver. 
And so all these things kind of work together versus maybe staying where all my Christian friends or, or leaders wanted me to be. Stay at Christian school. You got to be there. And I hated it there. I literally, and I was almost a better Christian when I was at Georgia, and I had to make those choices. Matter of fact, the fraternity I, that I did join there was a business fraternity, but we had a house. I was always a designated driver. You know, I was always, wherever we went, I was like, Rick, you're driving because, you know, we know you don't drink or you're not going to drink that much. Um, but I was always accused of being so drunk on Monday because, dude, you were crazy on Saturday. You looked, wow. I was like, that was just me, bro. I didn't need the alcohol. That was just, you know, having fun, doing doing whatever. So those were the things I had to work on in going from B.C., Rick, get rid of the alcohol, the drugs, the chasing girls and stuff, to having a two-year hiatus of not doing that and and loving you know, where I was at. And even when I would go try and dip my toe over here in that other stuff, I'd want to go so bad and enjoy. And then I really, I just couldn't. And that was such a frustration. But then I realized, okay, this is where I really need to be. I'm no longer that guy. I am renewed that hanging out, getting drunk, sleeping around, doing drugs, dropping F-bombs everywhere is not who I am any longer. It was, let's get around people, read the word, and let's influence you know, some folks that are going down, down the wrong path, that became kind of who I, who I was now. Well, Rick, you, you bring up so many good points. And, uh, you know, the, the thing I really want to highlight is that you um, really portrayed that very well, is that when you become a Christian, you have that inner desire to get to know God and truly understand who God really is. And I think, um, you know, one of the ways we do that is reading the Word. And you didn't talk about that much, but how important is reading the Word? Was, was it for you at that time to read the Word? And how did that help you in this process? It became so important just because I, I had no idea what the Word said. You know, I had the Bible stories, the traditional Bible stories, Samson, you know, David and Goliath. You know, Jesus being born, the Easter story, the Christmas story, all those kind of things. I knew those things, and they were they were good things. And I credit the Catholic Church for teaching some of those basic Bible stories. And there was truth in there, and the Word never comes back void. Um, but I was reading, and I was I would be like, I didn't know the Word said this. I didn't know it spoke to, you know, Deuteronomy twenty eight one through thirteen about all the things that that part of the covenant with Abraham, all the things we get for being in, in covenant. And I didn't really get to understand that until later on in life. Or, um, you know, treading on serpents or, you know, all these different things in, in the Gospels and then reading, um, then reading Paul's stuff. I was big into Romans as a baby Christian. Romans was my favorite book. Um, which really is one of the most difficult books in, in the New Testament, but it really was one of my favorites, and it really helped me, I think, understand theology in a very, very basic manner. It didn't, I don't think I understood grace as much because I still was an ex-Catholic Christian with a rule book uh, trying to follow the rules, and you know, I, I did a good job by renewing my mind and, and realizing that I was this person now that was in Christ, but I didn't have an in Christ reality or an in Christ revelation like we hear about 
uh, from our first and second year courses at, at Karis with Lawson Purdue, who does just does a great job of really illuminating who the Bible, who the God says we are in Him. And so many of us, um, you know, get saved. I was avoiding hell when I got saved. I wanted to escape hell. I wasn't running after Jesus because I loved Him or anything else. I didn't want to go to hell because I saw my cousin Matt live a hell, hellish rebel, re, rebellion life, and I didn't want to end up like him. And I, and the Catholic priest who did his funeral called him Matthew the whole time, which illustrated that he had no idea who Matthew was. Because Matthew wasn't Matthew, he was Matt. Nobody knew him as Matthew. And it made me so mad. It was kind of a big chill event for me. If you've ever seen that movie, all these people come back together for a funeral because they're surprised that their friend committed suicide. It was so life imitating art um, for us there. Uh, But it was, you know, because Matt was the life of the party and he was a big personality and all this sort of thing. But the word became, you know, so important and it's, it gets more important even now, 30 years later, 35 years later, 37 years later, you know, after last night and, and today looking at, you know, Proverbs 21 two, you know, so many times what the word does and Barry does a great job of talking about, don't just pick a verse and stay on that. What does the whole of scripture say? Because when we look at verse two, it, it really says, and this is talking about, you know, every way of a man seems right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And sometimes we can take a scripture and stand on that, and there's nothing wrong with it, as long as you know the stuff that surrounds it, context and all the other scriptures. And just later on down in 21, it talks about, you know, giving bribes, that it it cools off this thing. But then in other parts of Proverbs, it says evil bribes. So which is it? You know, you start looking at it, um, but what really spoke out, and this is what I see God do in scripture a lot, is the very last Verse 31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. That verse stuck out out of all of those admonitions in that whole chapter. That one is, where's Waldo? It's the dude with the white and red shirt standing out. It's like, what am I doing here in this crowd of all these false witnesses? The wicked man hardens his heart. All of a sudden, the horse is prepared for the day of battle. And I'm in the school of practical government and, and what we are learning there, and the reason we call it practical, is, is application. Uh, so many Christians pray, and this is what stood out about this verse to me, is that we pray and pray and pray, God do this, God do that, God do this. And, and I see God up there looking at Jesus, and it's like, hey, didn't you tell them that you gave them the keys and the power that, you know, I've been accused of being... Uh, conceited in my life, or God, Rick, you really think you're God's gift. And I was like, well, I've got scripture for that. And it's, I think, Colossians 119, that not Christ in me, the hope of glory. And it's every single Christian out there, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that your eternal security, satisfaction, um, everlasting life, I've got that key inside of me right now, and it's not me. It's the Spirit of Christ living in me. And that verse, though, talks about preparing your horse. What is a horse in 
biblical times. It was a tool, a weapon of war. It was your work. It was something that we used in order to affect certain things to have happen. And too many Christians pray and ask God to do stuff, and God's telling you, pray, get the mind of Christ, but go out and do. Be the hands and feet of Jesus, not sitting here, you know, squirreled away in our prayer closet. God wants us to get our marching orders from our prayer closet. And then any deliverance, any victory we have, any success we have outside of our prayer closet, that's the Lord's. While we're out there doing, as James says, you want to see my faith? Watch what I do. And I see that verse in there just screaming at me specifically saying, look, you don't like what's going on? You go do something. Yeah, pray, but pray that you get my mind, you get my marching orders, and then go out and start swinging. Go and start chopping. Go and start doing what you do, and then I'll kind of order your steps and be a part of that battle. But I can't fight the battle without you. I can't do anything because we're his hands and feet. And so that verse in Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one. Uh, just was screaming at me is like, here's a, it's standing out, but it's really telling us, get out, get off your butt, get out of your closet, go out and do. And Arnold, uh, not Arnold, yeah, Norman Schwarzkopf, the great general for the first uh, Gulf War, um, has always said, you know, a poor battle plan radically executed is better than a perfect battle plan next week. You know, and if we go out and radically try and execute what God's telling us, we could be wrong, but guess what? He can at least redirect us going out there and doing stuff. But so many times we wait for the perfect plan, and that perfect plan never comes because he wants us to get out and do. So that's my takeaway from from uh, chapter 21, and I think that's all I've got in my head. All right. Rick, I'm, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. In Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And the New Living Translation says, finds a treasure. How has your relationship with your wife made you a better person? Oh, let me count the ways. <clears throat> um, number one, she's so much nicer than I am. Uh, I have a, a northeastern edge of uh, sarcasm and uh, acerbic wit that's very cutting. And she's gentle and kind and sweet and loving. Um, So, but having that dichotomy where I'm wanting to go out and, you know, kill stuff, blow stuff up, shoot it, destroy it. She's bringing me over here to her side, say, let's be a little bit nicer. Let's be a little bit kinder. Um, But what's so cool about our relationship is we're both, you know, we're both, uh, you know, high I's or high D's, you know, high, very uh, social people. When we go to a party, we'll set our watch to say, okay, meet back here in an hour and a half. And we go work the room. She's very, very social, has so many friends, is so very kind of so many women that, you know, would lay down their lives for her. And we just have, we know a lot of people. And, uh, but she has this ability because she does listen more than she talks a lot and she laughs a lot more than than she talks she has a lot of people that follow her which is in my mind don't you have to tell them something to get them to follow no uh she's more of a i love what you're saying you're so great and it's like oh i want to follow you 
So she has just a, a slew of women that have always wanted to get get after her, and that's been a great um, that's been a great illustration and example for me to you know uh, listen more, be more interested in what people are doing. And she's just a great mom, a great wife, a great daughter. She runs the whole extended family. If something's going to happen, Val gets it done. Um, she's an incredible grandma now, although she's not old enough to be a grandma. She's a uh, G-mama, I think is what we're calling her. We have one grandson that's 18 months old, and it's just the light of our lives. It's so much better than your own kids. It's a lot of fun. I never I, People say that all the time, but it's just a different experience, and he's just, he's just amazing. Um, but she has just been kind of having that church background. Her dad was a missionary and a pastor, so she has a perspective that's so much different than mine that she's seen the dark underbelly of ministry. She's seen the dark underbelly of what it's like to actually go out and serve the Lord because it is not easy. Even if God is with you and anointed you to do it, there's there's a lot of shrub you got to cut through and get through. So in looking at anything that we've wanted to do, um, it, it's been great to have her perspective because she comes from ministry and in her mind never wants to be involved in it, you know, ever again. Yet she does so much of it naturally as a part of her, her personality. So she has definitely been a, a temperance uh, to my bravado and sharpness. And it's it's been really kind of fun. And and so I can't I can't even imagine where I'd be, you know, really without her because she's, um, you know, it's embarrassing when I always hear people say, well, my wife's the most beautiful woman in the world. And I just have to laugh because that that's already been taken up by me. You know, my wife is is that woman that women want to be her men want to be with her. You know, she's just gorgeous, so much fun, so engaging. And, uh, you know, I married the prom queen and the homecoming queen and and uh, she's just, you know, just a fantastic person. I definitely uh, outkicked my coverage and and uh, and married up. So it's it's uh, it's just illustrating the grace of God in my life uh, from where I've I've actually come from. Wow, that's that's so good. You know, and Rick, I often say this um, on on this podcast when I have someone. I said, you love your parents, you love your kids, and now you love your grandparents, you love your parents. But when it comes to your wife, the word cherish has to come, and and it's different, the relationship you have. Explain what that means to you to cherish your wife. Wow, that's, yeah, that's, that's a deep one. It's so, um, you know, when you first meet your your wife, you're, for guys, we're, we're looking at the physical and um, what can I glean from this relationship? And then over time, um, you realize that there's a lot more than looks, beauty, sex, uh, having fun, fellowship, all those different things, that there's, that there's qualities. And when I uh, do my Rick thing and blow stuff up, she's definitely a peacemaker. And that has helped so much in my relationship with my kids uh, with my friends, um, with um, even with God sometimes. Um, but, you know, just having the ability now with the kids gone, um, we were just talking the other day just about how we don't remember a time where we felt this close to each other, this much in love. Um, 
I actually don't like it when my kids are around. <laughs> I want to get home. I just want to be with her. Hey, let's talk. Let's do this. Let's do that. And I'm fighting for her attention and stuff because I just want to be with her. And this is 31, 32 years later after we met. And we've already spent a whole bunch of time. And we had a whole bunch of ups and downs. And, and we had many opportunities to divorce along the way. You know, we had challenges with kids. We had challenges with each other. Um, and I, we just stayed the course. Really didn't believe in divorce. Spoke it a couple times. Didn't really want to speak that. But I remember seeing people that got divorces and then what happened in their lives. More, most specifically, my sushi chef here in town. I watched him divorce his first wife and then go out and play the fool as a little kid going out to the clubs trying to meet new women. And he met one, married her. Then he had to give half his stuff to her too. So he's given half his stuff away twice. And and it was just embarrassing. And he's, he's, he's divorced her. And now he's on, you know, three, four or five, not wives, but girls. And he won't marry again because he didn't want to give away any more of his stuff. So I, I, I give him credit. And I'm like, June, if it wasn't for you, I might have been divorced. You know, watching you go through what you went through kept me married. And it was interesting. I, you would hit a plateau. There'd be some trouble. It'd mess it up. You'd go down. But, man, if you just stick with it, you get to a level that's so much higher than where your peak was before that we're hitting peaks now that I never thought would have been, um, you know, possible. Uh, my wife complains that I'm constantly just fawning over her at our age, in our 50s. And she's still striking and she's still fun to be with and still... Um, likes to party, you know, likes to go out and have fun with friends and, and fellowship and laugh and get loud and dr drinking and drugs are not involved in those sort of things. Well, drinking a little bit, you know, a nice fine wine or, or, or something else. And I'm a, I'm a beer connoisseur, which means I drink for taste, not for quantity, one or two, but that's not, that's my issue and doesn't need to be yours. But, um, for us, we just, it's getting better and better. And I've, I've heard people talk about empty nests. It either wrecks you or it makes you. And I'm just glad we're in this place where, uh, where it's being confirmed over and over and over that we're uh, each other's soulmate, that God put us together. I mean, how in the world would you have ever thought to meet your spouse living in Atlanta where, and being at the University of Georgia where I was eyeball deep in gorgeous women, but I go meet someone who's prettier than all of them on a tiny little island off the coast of a tiny little country in Central America. It's just a story that you cannot write this stuff. It's definitely God's hand and um, great family, and it was it's good to be a part of that. But having um, you know just that relationship where God was the center. You know, physicalness wasn't the center. Uh, her dowry, which was empty, uh, wasn't the center of why we got married. And her inheritance, which, you know, is not going to be anything. Um, but the, the inheritance she has is a walk with the Lord because her dad was just an amazing Bible teacher. And, and that heritage has been passed on to my kids. My parents got some money, but they're, they don't have a relationship with the Lord. So my kids may get some money, but that's going to get spent, you know, but are they going to, what are they going to get from my folks? That's going to be eternal. So my in-laws have given us everything in having that relationship and my kids love hanging out with them, even though they don't have money. My kids love hanging out with my in-laws 
because there's something authentic and there's something God-centered in there, and they love that, and they love the acceptance they get there. So it's just, and Val just, you know, she epitomizes that in in our family as just being that um, beautiful, graceful, loving person that's focused on you, not on what you can do for me, you know? And it's just, it's, I, I can't imagine where we'd be where I'd be, you know, without her and where my kids would be without her. So. Well, that is so good. And, you know, I'm with you, but I think it's such a beautiful portrayal of what a wife should be. And I think without a doubt, I always, I know that my wife is better than me. I always know she's the better half. I know I am where I am because of her and she is my best friend, and, you know, I mean, I never get tired of seeing her smile. Rick, our time is at an end. Um, what I'd like for you to do is just share anything else you'd like to share and give anyone an opportunity to receive Jesus if, if, if they've never done that. Okay. <clears throat> I think we all have a privilege to be living in the time that we're in. Um, if it's not the end times... It's the ramp up to the end times. Um, and that's an incredible opportunity because we have a whole book. We have several books in the Bible that focus on the time that, that we're in. But I think that if you're listening to this, you're probably pretty serious about your walk uh, with the Lord. And I would encourage you to uh, put on that armor of God. Get uh, ready for the battle. The battle's coming. Um, the last election we just had, it's amazing that we elected some of the people that we elected that are godless, that have no character or integrity, um, and that are espousing things that are not what our founding fathers uh, really ever wanted for us. And as Christians and as believers, going to church and just being that Christian on Sunday there's no room for that anymore. You're going to get chewed up and spit out in the world because pretty soon they're going to be coming for us all. And that's kind of a scary thing to think that we could be in a scenario uh, like in other uh, socialist or communist countries where Christians are hated or rounded up or, or persecuted. But we are already there. And so my admonishment is the admonishment I've been getting weekly in class. And as I learn um, more and more about the Bible and from people that are boots on the ground is get the word hidden in your heart, store it up in there, spend as much time as you possibly can. Uh, I've turned off all cable and dish and direct TV and all that kind of stuff. I've turned off several streaming services so I can have more time to get into the Word, to store that thing up inside of me, because I need that life on a daily basis, especially when I come up against um, life itself. And so if you haven't uh, started that practice, do it. And if you haven't, if this all is kind of Greek to you because you don't have a relationship with the Lord, let me tell you how easy it was for me. Um, I was a fancy Atlanta kid wearing really nice clothes that saw love in the eyes of a guy on an Air Force base that um, was wearing polyester blend clothing and had an um, Air Force mustache, which just was never fashionable. But this guy had love in his eyes and had a relationship with Jesus that for him was going to last eternity. And for me, all I had to do was say, Jesus, I can't do this myself. I need your help. 
be the Lord of my life. And that's all that it really takes as long as you believe that in your heart. Now, I don't believe saying the words get you there, but you really have to repent, turn like I did. I stopped drinking. I stopped partying. I had a season where I was just alone with God and let him change you into the person that he wants you to be. Because let me tell you something, the life that you have in Christ is so much better than anything else you could ever manufacture. So in your quiet time or right here with me, just say, Jesus, I can't do this. I need your help. Be the Lord of my life. Come in and fix me. My life is yours. And in Jesus' name, that's going to happen. And it'll happen quick. It's going to be funny to see how much change happens. And just uh, ask God to help you quit the stuff that may be getting in the way and go from there. Wow, Rick, that is so powerful. Once again, thank you so much for coming on. So much wisdom partaking from your mouth today. It's just been a blessing. Thank you so much. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Friends, please join me again tomorrow as we further explore wisdom today.